Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books in History, a channel of the New uh, Books Network. I'm your host, Franz Wagenberg. I'm a historian of Japan at Penn State. Today, I'll be talking to Eric Lindstrom uh, about his new book, uh, Age of Emergency, Living with Violence at the End of the British Empire, which came up with Oxford uh, earlier this year. With me today also is Dr. John Paul Newman, a 20th century European historian at uh, Minot University in Ireland. Hope I pronounced it right. Uh, Dr. Newman and Lindstrom uh, are taking part with me, together with me also, at a research group on globalizing the history of the world wars organized by Bruno Cabanas at Ohio State, where we tackled the long history and global impact of war and violence on the 20th century. I was also previously together with Eric Lindstrom, part of a project on Cold War and psychology in Birkbeck University of London, and learned much in general from his work on psychology, colonialism, chemical weapons, an article I just talked in my class, by the way. Uh, and I'm thrilled to have him and John Paul Newman meet today. So hello, John Paul. Hello, Eric. Uh, hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So, Eric, I want to start with this general question we ask everybody. Uh, what brought you to this story? And maybe you can tell us more about your own background. How does it lead you to this uh, particular uh, idea to write about colonial violence in the end of Empire? Sure. Um, yeah, well, I think that's a big question. I'll try not to talk for too long uh, about the answer, but I think... There's probably a, a historiographical answer and a more autobiographical answer. Um, I think the historiographical answer really has to do with a re-evaluation in British imperial history over the past 20 years or so about the centrality of violence, which um, was something that really was not as central to histories of British imperialism as, as you might think and as many people might expect today. Um, you know, I don't want to go into a whole disciplinary history, but clearly... Uh, a big part of what British imperial history was, was a kind of top-down, often very geopolitical, uh, political economy, diplomacy-focused field, um, which, uh, you know, has certain advantages, but I think also d- does end up leaving out a lot of um, human experience and, and certainly um, what we now think of as the dark side of, of empire. Of course, British imperial history originally was born in a kind of sense of patriotic purpose, if we go back to its 19th century roots. Um, and we think about people like Seeley and, and Dilke and so on. So there are sort of deep rooted reasons um, for maybe avoiding uncomfortable questions about the way that British imperialism uh, really worked. Um, so that has changed. Uh, and I'm sort of, I think on, you know, maybe in some ways the, the tail end of that change or somewhere in the middle of that reevaluation in, in the field. Um, and this is maybe where the autobiographical piece uh, comes in. I remember being a, a senior uh, in college at Princeton and reading uh, Caroline Elkin's book, her first book, Imperial Reckoning on the Counterinsurgency in Kenya, which had just come out in 2006. Um, of course, David Anderson's book, a very complimentary book in many ways, also about the counterinsurgency in Kenya came out the same year. Uh, I want to say 05 or 06. I'm not sure now. I think I read it in 06. But in any case, um, these, these books came out at a moment when, of course, uh, the U.S. was at war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, I vividly remember the Abu Ghraib scandal around this time. So this is very much uh, 
the backdrop in which I was reading these things. Neil Ferguson had published his book, Empire, sort of arguing that Americans need to embrace their imperial destiny and, and throw off their sort of historic reluctance to recognize their own imperial destiny. Uh, and then on the other side, you have these, um, you know, very damning studies about what counterinsurgency was about. Um, of course, at the very same moment that America and Britain uh, were waging uh, a counterinsurgency, actually two counterinsurgencies at that time. Um, I also remember David Petraeus and the counterinsurgency field manual, which came out around this time, which explicitly sort of um, was modeled on the example of, of the British in, in Cyprus and Malaya and this idea that Britain had perfected a kind of clean, uh, relatively bloodless counterinsurgency strategy that America could then imitate. So um, all of that is to say that I think uh, one reason uh, for the reevaluation of British imperial history and the, the role of violence in it has a lot to do with a, a sense of American empire and the violence involved in American empire at that time. And I think, although I wasn't maybe totally conscious of it at the time, that was a big part of what drew me into these, these questions. Um, so for my first book, I, I actually didn't write centrally about violence. I, I did um, write this book about psychology in the British Empire, which touched on psychoanalysis and mental testing, but also did eventually get to the question of how psychology was operationalized in counterinsurgency and the idea of hearts and minds, uh, which of course is a big part of the Petraeus myth and the counterinsurgency myth and sort of how that played out in terms of psychological practice and also in terms of systemized violence. So Having finished that, I sort of knew I wanted to write more about colonial war and, and the violence of decolonization. Um, and, and what really, I think, um, struck me as, as a, a burning question still that hadn't been fully addressed by this new wave of revisionist scholarship on what counterinsurgency actually looked like in practice, not just in Kenya, but also in Cyprus and Malaya. There have been so many good case studies in, in all of these conflicts, was the question of how people in Britain learned about the use of violence in these conflicts, what they knew about the use of violence in these conflicts and how they responded to it. And that to me was still something that had not been addressed um, even by this new wave of work. So I wanted to delve more deeply into that. And I think maybe circling back and out to the historiographical questions, having grown up in a moment when, you know, the new imperial history, uh, you know, sort of uh, very briefly, the idea that British national histories and overseas imperial histories are inextricably intertwined, having grown up with that sort of historiographical movement as, um, you know, almost a, a conventional wisdom, I sort of wanted to integrate that with this new sense of, of violence at the center of empire. So if empire really is constitutive of central to British national history, and if violence is really central to the history of empire, how do we bring those things together? What does British history look like? What does a kind of domestic or metropolitan British history look like? if we're putting violence and colonial violence at the center. So, so the book is sort of an attempt to answer that question. Yeah, and it's a really, you ended up in a really good way to segue to, to my first um, content question, which is the opening of the book, which really is very domestic. You can't even get more domestic. It's open with this diary entry of uh, Mari Towler's Mass Observation uh, Diary. I mean, it's a beautiful source, and Mass Observation is such a gift to British history that I'm very envious of not having my disposal in what I do. So she talks about colonial warfare in Kenya and Cyprus in passing. And while well, she's talking about her day and like errands and stuff like this, right? Uh, and then next to it, in a much more dramatic fashion, but also very captivating, you also have this quote from Graham Green that really stayed with me there, which is also the title of the introduction, which reads, and I read it now, that the war was like mist. It's prevented everything. It's up the spirits. It wouldn't clear. 
what does this quote mean and diary entry? If, like, if war was just there in the background, but it was everywhere at the same time, this presence and absence of colonial wars in British home front, how, how, how do you explain this? Yeah, you sort of put your finger on a yeah, major question of the book. Um, how is war both present and absent, right? Or how is distant war both sort of present and, and absent? Um, and that will be, I think, very difficult to address in, in a soundbite. Um, I, I'm particularly drawn to that that line, that Graham Greene line, as you were, the war was like a mist, um, which he wrote when he was reporting from Malaya, uh, in, I think 1950. Um, and by the way, Greene's one of my favorite characters, had been one of my favorite writers anyway, but seeing him pop up in Malaya and then in Kenya, uh, and also engaging very centrally with questions of violence in both of these places, both justifying it in some cases and pushing back on it in other cases. Uh, for me, he's, he's a very representative figure of all the ambivalences and ambiguities of this of this story. Um, also, I should say maybe in some ways justifying violence in public and, and being more hesitant about it in private. That's another kind of recurring theme of a lot of the, the characters I look at. Um, but this idea of uh, war like a mist, the fog of war, I guess would be the metaphor we're more familiar with is something I did want to explore um, because I think that's such a cliche in some ways, this idea that, that the, the ambiguities of war, the moral uncertainties of war excuse certain kinds of behavior that, that wouldn't be acceptable in other contexts. Again, that's such a familiar idea. I, I sort of wanted to, to probe it more, more deeply and uh, to um, really show how those ambiguities and ambivalences are not just a natural feature of war, um, but that they are produced. They're produced by institutions. They're produced by certain social codes and norms. And so a lot of the meat of the book is actually looking at these intermediary groups who are producing knowledge about violence, the journalists, the missionaries, the aid workers, the activists, and, and so on. And so what I want to try to say is that the the mist of war, the fog of war, uh, all of the moral uncertainty and uneasiness surrounding war is not just um, a kind of natural condition. It is it is something that is um, produced and generated by social actors with, with very definite agendas. Um, and, and to try to get this idea that in many ways, knowledge of the brutality involved in these wars was widespread. It was something that was accessible and available and known by many people in Britain and by many different groups in Britain. Um, but the, at the same time, it, it was hedged with, it was shaped in ways that made it difficult uh, for people to act on it. Or maybe I should say made it easy for them not to act on it. And so trying to walk that balance is, is a big part of, of what the book is about. Yeah, you mentioned the word denial. You say you don't want to use it. Like, actually, in, in my, my last book, I use I, I use it quite a lot because it's more in psychology. But it's, it's really a lot of parallels here, a bit like the idea of denial, the seeing and not seeing, like being present. The violence is in your face, but yet you don't see it. It's really important. Uh, yeah, John Paul, uh, you have an excellent next question here. So, well, thank thank you, uh, uh, thank you for the invitation, uh, Ran, um, and uh, uh, thank you, Eric, uh, uh, for for sharing your work. Uh, and, and indeed, it's it's good to be in conversation and dialogue with uh, both of you uh, once again, continuing the the discussions we'd had on the the globalizing uh, world wars in uh, um, in Ohio last year. Um, Eric, I'm particularly fascinated in your book. Uh, um, I, I grew up in the UK um, and I was educated uh, um, in the UK, uh, but I'm always learning from reading uh, books on the British Empire, such as yours, critical works. And, and I think that goes to show 
that there's a, a real deficit in the public sphere and in, in the educational, the school schooling spheres uh, um, in, in the UK. So that, that's always uh, um, fascinating for me to read work such as yours. Um, I have a question uh, that you've sort of raised earlier on um, about the myth of the clean British Empire. Uh, um, which was indeed very sort of active and, and uh, um, in vogue during the uh, the wars in uh, um, in Afghanistan and Iraq. You, you do a very good job of uh, debunking this uh, um, this myth, um, and, and so I guess I wanted then to turn that notion of British exceptionalism, British imperial exceptionalism, on its head and, and say, okay, well, if the British Empire is not uniquely uh, uh, pacific and non-violent. Uh, um, what are its distinguishing features uh, um, if, if we think about comparisons with uh, um, other uh, uh, um, decolonizing empires at this time? What, what is, what, what's British about the imperial uh, um, experiences in Malaya and um, Cyprus, if, if, if anything? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I admit it's one that I'm excuse me, I was not focused on because I, I do think trying to debunk exceptionalism was maybe my, you know, was, was sort of higher in my mind. Um, obviously, the big parallel here, you know, both in terms of the counterinsurgency itself, but also in terms of a kind of home front for colonial war would be France and Algeria at roughly the same time, about which so much more has been written. And I think part of what I want to try to do with the book is to say, you know, these are not exactly the same. In fact, the scale is, is quite different, right? The Algerian war was much bigger in, in almost every sense than any of the conflicts we talk about here. Um, and of course, you have a much bigger Algerian population in France, which, which creates a very different dynamic. But I did want to try to take some of that work on, you know, the strife, the tumult, the moral disquiet about counterinsurgency in France in this period and, and try to see how well that model works, you know, for the British case. And I do think the parallels are more striking to me ultimately than the differences. But to try to answer your question, I don't know if it's particularly British. I think there are elements in my story of deference to authority and a kind of elite establishment habit of wanting to deal with unpleasant issues behind closed doors rather than in public. And, and you see this kind of script of social deference, deference to hierarchy um, that I, I do think plays out quite a bit. So when I look, for instance, at missionaries who are aware of what's going on in the ground in Kenya and then are communicating those concerns up the, the chain of command of the Church of England, all the way to the Archbishop of Canterbury, in fact, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, usually says, Let's let the authorities do their work. It would be counterproductive to make any of this public. I, I trust the governor of Kenya. I think he's getting this under control. You see patterns like that emerge actually quite a bit in this story. Um, the BBC is another very hierarchical institution where you know concerns go up the chain of command and they often come back down in, in a different form. So um, there may be something British there about the way the establishment likes to work, about um, a penchant for secrecy uh, where possible. Um, there's also, of course, the bigger question of what liberal imperialism looks like and, and what, what a liberal style of colonial violence might look like, which, to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about because I think liberalism gets overused as an explanation for everything that goes wrong with empires as well as whatever might be potentially you know, redemptive about empires or um, you know, the capacity to reform in, in imperial history. Um, but I do think maybe the openness relatively about a lot of these debates about colonial violence owes something to liberalism. So, um, and this would be a contrast with France as well. There's really very little censorship in Britain 
about issues of colonial violence. Of course, there's quite draconian censorship in the colonies themselves, but then you have many figures who are expelled from or migrate from these colonial conflict zones and end up in Britain, particularly in London, able to publish and speak freely about what they see as the atrocities that are going on there. That's sort of one sense in which you know, British liberal pretensions create a space for critique that, that probably wouldn't be there otherwise. Um, and so, you know, when you have soldiers publishing quite graphic novels and memoirs about their experiences of the war, uh, when you have reporters um, sometimes delivering quite critical and uh, unsettling images of, of what's going on in these wars, um, those kinds of things, that, that kind of openness, that kind of explicitness, I think maybe wouldn't be possible without, if not a particularly British um, sensibility, then at least a kind of liberal sensibility and a commitment to liberalism. Yeah, th- thank you for that. Uh, that that's so. I mean, I, I had that had occurred to me when I was reading your book. What what would the uh, the comparison be with a country like Salazar's Portugal? Uh, um, I mean, uh, you know, would, would things be done done very differently? Um, okay, okay, I'm going to put you back to Rad, and and, and I've got a couple more questions uh, coming down the the line for you. So thanks. I'm I'm also a comparative. Uh, thanks, for Paul. And I mean, I would like to kind of also stay in the comparative mode, asking you about another thing you did. <laughs> I mean, you do write a little bit about this also, uh, but uh, it's it's also a little bit of a tricky question. Like, how does you compare this chronologically, not across empires? Because when I teach empire, when all of us teach empire, we kind of stop in 1945. I think that's what we all do, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and But what I really like about your book, about it, is it engaged really almost exclusively in post-1945 colonial warfare. Uh, and you do mention colonial war, right? Uh, but it's very different from our quote unquote regular idea of colonial war. So how does what what makes it what makes the difference from let's say pre-war colonial warfare to post-war world to colonial warfare? Right, right. Very interesting. Um, so I, yeah, I have two. I think I have two ways of answering that question. I mean, I think there's a question on the one hand about counterinsurgency itself and and practices of war and longer continuities there. And then there's a separate set of questions about, for lack of a better term, the metropolitan or domestic impact of these wars and why that might look different in the post-1945 context. And that's really where the the focus of my book lies. But to say something briefly first about longer continuities, you know, with colonial war, I do think in terms of the techniques, in terms of practices of counterinsurgency, uh, and I know this, this touches on um, some of John Paul's interests as well. Um, there are, I think, very marked continuities, and the continuities are more notable than any sort of differences with with uh, post-1945 practice. So practices like collective punishment, for instance, um, go, that goes back you know, well into the 19th century, the northwest frontier of India, you know, leveling villages uh, for reprisals, uh, cutting off access to food, things of that nature. Um, those have a very long history in the British Empire and in other imperial contexts as well. Um, and of course, these are also going to be a major feature of the post-1945 conflicts. Um, you know, things like forced population movement, maybe being used on a smaller scale before, or being used on a bigger scale after the war. But again, there's continuity there. Um, the use of detention camps, of course, famously in the Anglo-Boer War in South Africa, that's going to be scaled up um, in these post-45 conflicts. So I would see more differences in terms of scale rather than the, the techniques that are being used. Um, torture has a very long history in the British Empire and policing and other things. Um, so if anything changes in terms of practices, I would see it more as um, a kind of standardization or uh, systematization of these practices. So there's a kind of handbook 
that is then being deployed with increasing regularity, I think, after 1945. Practices that had been more ad hoc are becoming, um, as I say, standardized. I think Caroline Elkin's more recent book gets into this very well, and, and she sees the, the Palestine revolt of the 1930s as a real um, moment for the kind of um, the synthesis of, of different techniques, which then um, are sort of applied again and again in an almost mechanical way. Um, so that's to answer the, the question, at least to some degree, about uh, military practice. Um, the reason I wanted to focus on post-1945 and on the 1950s uh, in particular, um, well, first I thought this was um, a kind of synchronic or a sort of narrow time slice approach was the best way to get at questions of networks of knowledge and information circulation. I think that just um, that just made sense to me intuitively to think about things like media, letters, journalism at one moment in time. Um, but for various reasons, as I argue in the book, I think the post-1945 environment and colonial war in this period did have a, a deeper impact in Britain than earlier moments of colonial violence did for, for a number of structural reasons. Conscription is the big one, of course. You know, you didn't really have conscripts fighting earlier colonial wars. You do because of national service and its continuation until 1960. Uh, here, that's a huge, a huge factor, I think, um, in ensuring that colonial violence isn't something that's kept within the military and, and military circles. Um, so that's that's a big one. The Second World War itself and ideas about you know fighting a good war or what a bad fascist war looks like. I mean, these lessons were not applied, I don't think, in a simplistic way, but you did hear a lot of anti-war rhetoric in the 1950s about we're using fascist methods, we're using Gestapo methods, and I think that precedent does complicate um, you know, thinking about colonial war in, in all kinds of ways. Um, you have media, you have the advent of television, you have a bigger uh, newspaper readership than ever before, so I think this is a more intensely mediatized world than before. Uh, you have the growth of migration from the empire. You have increasingly um, a black British population, which is very politically engaged and very interested in colonial issues. I think that's a huge difference. Um, that also, I think, is related to the right wing backlash, both against immigration and a kind of backlash in defense of colonial war, um, which, again, is going to rise, I think, or increase rather the salience and the visibility of all of these issues. So. Um, you know, there are others I could mention, but that gives you some sense of, of why I want to focus on this moment as a, a particularly maybe um, useful moment in which to explore the idea of, of violence as something that didn't just happen out there, but, but was pervasive at home. Yeah, I think the presidents of, the, of World War II and the Good War and, and then the, the increased visibility, but at the same time, around the invisibility of, of violence, as you, your book shows very well, it's a... Uh, it's, it's really unique to this particular moment. Uh, John Paul, you... Uh, yeah, well, uh, um, th thank you for that. I, actually, my next question is, is kind of a follow-on um, uh, from, uh, from, from Rand's. Uh, um, it, it's also about earlier waves of, of decolonization and experiences, but, but maybe also later waves. Uh, um, so I, I live and work in Ireland, and, and of course, Ireland, uh, part of the Irish exceptionalist national uh, um, story is that they were the first to uh, to decolonize from uh, um, from British rule so I, I I wonder maybe Rand was asking about the, the 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 sort of the institutional continuities and continuities of practice was there any discursive continuity was there a discussion about the precedent of Ireland um, in in the area that you're talking about uh, and maybe a follow-up question to that slightly more challenging is, 
of course, in a sense, this Irish decolonization was incomplete because Ulster and Northern Ireland uh, um, remained part of uh, Great Britain. So going forward to the 70s and the 80s, uh, um, uh, when there, there was military, military conflict uh, um, in the north, was there a discussion there about what had come before um, in the kind of places that you're writing about? Yeah, yeah, great, great questions. Um, I, I do think Ireland is always um, lurking in the background of, of these histories. Uh, and I, you know, amid what's a kind of very heated scholarly debate, I, I certainly think of and I teach Ireland as Britain's first colony, um, you know, and, and I know that would drive a lot of historians mad, but I think there's there's more truth to it than, than otherwise. Um, so in, in, in terms of, you know, uh, continuities, again, with um, with counterinsurgency, I, I, I do see Ireland as a very important sort of precedent and, and ground for experimentation. Um, one of the key sort of legal tools that were used in, in counterinsurgency, the idea of um, detention without trial, was pioneered in Ireland. So this legislation goes back to the 19th century, um, 1830s, and then again in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, it would then be used in India. Um, so the way these practices jumped around the empire certainly has an interesting um, history as well. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, the violence um, immediately following the First World War, um, which, I, again, is going to be really important, not just in terms of uh, pioneering practices like door-to-door searches or, or torture under interrogation, although clearly those practices are, are very central there. Um but also in terms of giving actual military officers who are then going to move to Palestine and are later going to move to Malaya, kind of long-term generational experience of colonial war as this sort of endlessly recurring challenge. Um, and I do think that post-First World War moment, which of course is so central to histories of fascism in other countries, is very central to a kind of reactionary British imperialism that's then going to continue to see sort of challenges to British uh, authority in, in other places across the world, you know, right through the 1950s. So um, there's a, a very deep and important history there. To your point about the 1970s and 80s, I, I do try to touch on this very briefly at, at the end of the book, because I think in making the case that the memory of these conflicts, these 1950s conflicts um, in Malaya, Cyprus, and Kenya really didn't just die off after 1960, um, you know, they're not... Uh, they are. They do in some ways, I guess. I should say, in terms of official memory and textbooks at museums, I think these are you can almost say forgotten wars. But on the other hand, if you look at memoirs and, and novels and popular culture, and more recently, if you look at the legal system, and, and perhaps we'll get into that later, um, there is a way in which these conflicts have never really gone away. Um, and I do think one of the moments in which that memory is reactivated um, is indeed the troubles, um, because the parallels are so clear to so many contemporaries at the time. And particularly the use of torture and the so-called five techniques involving things like sensory deprivation and, and stress positions was widely known at the time. It was debated in the British press at the time, and it was attributed to the practice of Malaya, Cyprus, and Kenya at the time. So this was all sort of in, in the public eye. Um, and so many of the, the films and, and particularly television films that I discuss in the book are sort of referencing that, that history at the time. Um, John le Carré, Ticker Taylor, Soldier Spy, also mentions... Uh, you know, a book that's written at this time also mentions this sort of uh, dark history of bounty hunting in Mau Mau, I think he says. So, um, so yes, there's clearly a sense, uh, I think, of Ulster, as, as one of the characters in these TV films says, of the last colonial battlefield, kind of terminal battle for empire. And I think that ends up inevitably sort of 
uh, dredging up some of these uncomfortable memories about about earlier conflicts. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll hand back to to Ran now. Yeah, I I really want to talk about a memory, but maybe we're just uh, going to skip it a bit later because memory is is a very big part of uh, or the lack of. I mean, I just talked about uh, this class, the classic article by uh, Paul Cameron about types of forgetting and why why and what sorts of uh, ways societies choose to forget. Um, but I, I want to talk, and it's related about a home front, the fact that there were people, you know, uh, that were always pointing out the violence, right? Like the radicals, uh, the radicals present, you say immigrant communities present, they were talking about the violence. And that made the home front, which is a new, I mean, other colonial wars we talked about before did not have a home front per se. At least no, it, no, it wasn't perceived as home front. Um, but this new idea of a home front and, and how does this, again, World War II is very important here, right? I mean, how does the idea of existence of a home front, right, uh, kind of change the way that those, those wars are perceived and, and actually and how, especially the place of radicals and immigrants within the home front? And how, how did it change the equation um, in terms of domestic discourse in the UK? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I do. One of my aspirations or ambitions with the book was to try to show what what a home front for colonial war would look like. And, and as I said earlier, I think we have books that show this very well for for France and Algeria, for instance. I, I don't think we've ever really had that, um, you know, that kind of portrait for for Britain, as far as I know. Um, so, so that's sort of what I've been trying to accomplish here. And, and yes, I think immigrant communities are so important here. You first of all have um, in terms of the actual specific ethnic groups involved in these conflicts, you have um, a quite large Cypriot population in Britain at this time, and in, in North London in particular. Um, the MP representing many of them, Lenny Yeager, um, in the, I believe it's the Holborn and, and St. Pancras North uh, constituency, becomes a really active voice in Parliament for, for pressing these issues. Um, you have much smaller and often ethnically divided um, Malayan uh, and uh, Kenyan communities mostly university students who for that reason are quite intensely politicized and become quite active in, in various forms of, of student groups and, and so on. Um, but as I say, it's sort of um, the, the wider black British population, um, West African students, for instance, sort of drawing on a longer Pan-African tradition, but, but also other uh, working class immigrants uh, who start showing up at meetings held by the Communist Party and other groups about the war in Kenya, about the use of torture there. Um, particularly after the West African colonies, for the most part, get their independence earlier in the decade, there's sort of a, a shifting of attention for, for many of them to, uh, to Kenya, which becomes a kind of uh, cause celeb. Um, and, and again, the, the use of torture there, I think, is quite, quite well documented and quite well known and, and is a galvanizing sort of force for, for many who are involved here. Um, so that's a huge part of it. Um, and and what, what's really significant here, I think, is that it then forces the nominally anti-colonial, but in practice often quite conservative Communist Party of Great Britain and even more the Labour Party to try to become more vocal on colonial issues. And I think those two institutions in particular had always been sort of competing for the anti-colonial mantle. They were always certainly interested in sort of picking up support from, uh, you know, non-white Britons and, and from immigrant groups. Um, so there's a bit of a political marketplace emerging to try to become the, the voice of the anti-colonial cause in this period. 
Um, and I think that that's quite significant. Um, the Labor Party itself and the Labor Party leadership in particular um, has quite a mixed record on uh, anti-colonial issues in this period. But you do see the emergence of a quite vocal and visible labor left with people like Fenner Brockway and Barbara Castle who become involved in the movement for colonial freedom um, and do a lot to publicize these issues and to, to question ministers uh, in the commons uh, about these issues. Um, I'm not sure that that would have happened were it not for the, the growth of, of an immigrant population in Britain in this period. Yeah, and of course, it's all, and you mentioned in your book, that it's all complicated by the fact that it's all happening in the midst of the Cold War, right? Which is a community where we, where the UK is still the good guys, right? Uh, in, in this fight against totalitarian Soviet. So it really puts all those, especially the Communist Party, uh, in all sorts of awkward positions, right? Yes, there, there's a lot of awkwardness. I mean, let's not forget that it's, it's the Labour Party that launches the war in Malaya when they're in power. Um, I do think their loss of power in 1952 then becomes a kind of significant moment because it allows them somewhat hypocritically to take pot shots at the wars that the conservatives are then inheriting in some cases launching on their own, on their own watch. Um, it allows, in other words, for a kind of partisan polarization to sort of emerge around these issues. But again, because of the cold war, because of the fear of being painted as communist labor party leadership is always sort of reluctant to fully embrace these causes. Um, which is why maybe in some ways I, I ultimately decided to play down or, or not pay that much attention to political partisan issues, because I think a lot of the action in terms of discussion of these issues was happening in the letters pages of newspapers. It was happening among journalists. It was happening among missionaries. It was happening in popular culture. I, I sort of um, found those were more fruitful areas ultimately for um, yeah pursuing these questions. Uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, uh, just very briefly on that, it, it always seems to me the British Labour Party uh, that they're always trying to sort of scrabble after Tory voters. It, it seems, and, and it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to happen the other way around. Like the, the Tory Party feel like they're the the natural gov- party of government, and, and to a certain extent, that's sort of still happening. Uh, um, uh, uh, in, the, in in twenty twenty three, Eric, I had a question about um, tropes and symbols um, and their relationship or not with reality. Um, I, I really w- was fascinated about it, and, and, and I must say enjoyed the, the parts of your book where you're talking about fiction and pulp, um, and you you have these kind of lurid. Um, characters who have some dark uh, experience of uh, um of uh, empire and this this comes out in some sort of antagonistic or villainous trope and you, you mentioned la cara and I, th- I think ricky tar was the character you mentioned from from tinker taylor the soldier spy so i i guess my question is um i i, I can see why this would make good copy uh, and a good uh, story, uh, um, but but was there any kind of reality uh, behind this, or is this just you know as I say a trope or a, um, uh, um, you know just a sort of a, a, a bad dream? Uh, um, and I guess my question, the heart of my question is, is it true that the metropole is essentially hermetically sealed from the kind of violence that that's happening in the colonies that you write about, and maybe in that sense quite different, say from from France during the, Alger- the war with Algeria? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I guess my, my first instinct is to answer by saying I'm, I'm enough of a cultural historian that I, I don't want to distinguish too sharply between words and actions or, or ideas and materialism. I think, I think that could be a bit of a false distinction, um, particularly when I'm trying to answer questions about knowledge and, and things of that nature. But um, I, I take your point. Yes, we clearly don't see the kind of, the kind of violence 
uh, domestic violence in Britain that we do in France. Um, I would say maybe we see a little more than we sometimes, you know, are, are want to remember. And so thinking particularly about the way some of these anti-colonial meetings were disrupted uh, violently by far-right provocateurs, um, those associated with the League of Empire Loyalists, as it was called, particularly one of these, um, you know, frankly, fascist groups that would later, uh, later feed into the foundation of the National Front. Um, so there was a kind of political scuffle, um, at least, and uh, there was, you know, kind of intimidation of political leaders and things like that. Uh, heckling of, of political speeches uh, to a degree that we may, I think, forget when we think about the 1950s in retrospect. Um, and of course, let's also not forget that there were soldiers who were injured and, and died in these wars, um, some of them conscripts, um, you know, and not in significant numbers, you know, thousands, thousands of men certainly um, were involved. And that's to say nothing then of the kind of, you know, at least psychological trauma that, that many of them faced when they, they came home. I think we still know very little actually about what happened to conscripts and others who did or saw terrible things in these wars and then came home. Maybe they returned to jobs as police officers. Maybe they returned to jobs as, as bus drivers. I think we know very little about what happens to them and, uh, and what impact they may have had uh, on British society. So um, I, I take your point that the, yeah, the comparison with France here would suggest uh, a, a less traumatic and tumultuous home front. And I, I certainly, I completely take that point. Um, but compared to, I think, the way this period is often remembered, there was a little more going on than, um, yeah, than we might suspect. Yeah, there's a lot a, a lot going on in the book. And actually, I was sort of, I, I don't, we, we, we organize our thought. We're, we're a bit pressed for time. So um, as I was reading the book, I was constantly sending passages to my friends who work on, on, on Israel-Palestine because I see so many things that are, because the British Empire, supposedly is over in the 60s, right? Um, in the 60s. But this, we talked about it before, the legal structures, right, remain, and the legacy of it remain, and the legacy of colonial violence remains. You talk about trauma now for the soldiers, but of course the Kenyan cases and others uh, show <laughs> there's a lot of uh, a lot of an afterlife, right? So, And for me, the, the conversation in your book or so, as someone who comes from Israel, um, and and live in the U.S., there's so many parallels between current conversation and uh, between the, the emergency regulations, right, uh, and their impact on domestic regulations in Israel. Now it's a big conversation on how the the colonies, I mean, the, the, the territories, occupied territories, a legal situation is kind of coming home to roost. Um, the discursive whitewashing, the role of civilians in the territories, I mean, how do emergency workers and humanitarian workers are, are taking part of empire, the journalist objectivity, cons- the corruption of conscripts, it's a big, big issue, right? All of this, there's so much stayed in the post-imperial empires or post-imperial uh, states. I mean, do you see this as a, I see it definitely as a global history. Do you see it also? I mean, can you talk about a global legacy of, of this era that you talk about? Sorry, it's not a question, but there's so so, as I was saying, uh, I think Yael Berda's recent work is very good on the legal continuities um, between British emergency and sort of various post-colonial emergencies. Um, I would say, for me, the the, the, leg- the legacy here really does come back, maybe somewhat provincially, to my my memory of uh, the Bush years and the politics of fear, uh, you know, in the two thousands and. 
you know, trying to get at this sort of dynamic of, you know, what it is to be a kind of consumer of disturbing information about what, you know, one's own country's armed forces is doing, you know, not only in, in, in my name or, or in our collective name, um, being exposed to that kind of information and yet having a very uncertain sense of, of what to do with it and how to act on it. And frankly, a sense of powerlessness that's associated with that kind of moral disquiet uh, and unease. Um, so I'm not sure it's uh, it's a legacy that is is easy to act on, but um, you're certainly right that in the case of, of former British colonies, um, you know, certainly uh, Malaysia is, is would be as good example as any. Um, Kenya would be another good example. Israel would be another very good example. Um, many of the legal structures that empowered British counterinsurgency have remained in place and continue to be used uh, on a routine basis to squelch dissent or uh, to manage occupations in an often you know violent way down to the present. So there's there's no question about that. Yeah, and also the liberal the liberal uh, you know tradition of that we're liberal and we're law abiding and we're not like the other like the French for example. Or uh, so there's also legacies that goes I think beyond the legal and I think your book can shows uh, uh, can show there's all those other trajectories that beyond the legal that, that also remains. At least that's what I see. No, I agree. But I would also say this is where my, you know, discomfort about liberalism as an as an explanatory category sort of comes in, because at a certain point, you're actually talking about quite illiberal practices. And if, if you're passing emergency regulations that allow sort of unlimited authority to the executive to detain people for indefinite periods and, and to round them up and so on, um, it's maybe a very kind of superficial stylistic liberalism because you, you've passed a law allowing the executive to do that. But, you know, even fascists have their enabling acts and other sort of legalist forms. So um, liberalism, to me, in the imperial context, morphs very quickly into illiberalism. And, and that's actually one of the kind of subsidiary points I tried to make at a few points in the book. Um, yeah, the there's an awful lot that's, that, that looks like, yeah, liberalism, if not a uh, kind of fascism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the state of exception within a democratic, a supposedly democratic uh, structure. Um, yeah, jump up. Yeah, we're actually writing. Uh, up. Uh, yeah. Okay, so th this might have to be my last question uh, uh, for you today, Eric. Uh, um, and um, it, it's uh, it's a when I was reading it, I was very struck uh, um, at the way for me it speaks to. Uh, um, you know, it, it speaks to the present uh, uh, as, as well as the past, and, and it does so in various ways. But the, the way I'm thinking about now is that there is a, an ongoing, uh, it seems, reticence uh, to uh, um, to discuss the uglier aspects of, uh, um, of, of of British Empire, and whether this is willful ignorance or outright denial or, or cognitive dissonance about again the, ex the suppose the exceptional way of of, of Britain's doing empire. I, I, I wouldn't really have an answer. Uh, um, so I, I guess maybe maybe you you do and and uh, um, you know is you know did you see any sort of change you know how how can this be addressed or will it change or how will it change um, it doesn't seem that within the cultural and the political mainstream there's there's a particular sort of uh, um, uh, appetite to do this. Yeah, I, I think I'm of two minds about this because on the one hand, there, there does seem to be a, a market for revisionist and critical histories of, of British imperialism, you know, as uh, shown by, um, you know, Caroline Elkin's most recent book, um, Empire Land, Ch Charlotte Riley's new book. So there is, um, there's been a, a lot published in this area recently that, that seems to be reaching some kind of audience in Britain. On the other hand, 
it seems as though the, the big bestseller in imperial history recently in Britain has been uh, Nigel Bigger's book, um, a largely apologetic and, um, you know, frankly, not very scholarly attempt to rehabilitate or at least muddy the moral waters around imperialism. Um, so I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, it's it's uh, hard to see a way forward. I think museums are probably trying to do more now than they were 10 or 15 years ago to, to reflect on these legacies. Um, I have no sense that there is an attempt to make imperial history and critical imperial history more central to say British school curricula or, or textbooks. And so that seems to be a quite disparity in front. And it's obviously hard to imagine the conservative government in power doing much about that. It's maybe equally hard to imagine Keir Starmer's Labour Party doing very much about that. So, so I agree. And, and that to me would be the most pressing area um, to address would, would be to, to make people in Britain see this as part of British history and, and for people to understand it. I should also say as an American, I, I hope Americans understand that this history is reflective of our own history. Um, and of course, I, I hope that, you know, um, American history is, will integrate lessons of colonialism and, and violence as well. This is not by any means a uniquely British situation, but we all have our own sort of exceptionalist myths and our own self-flattering yeah. mythologies. And so I, I do think um, it's important to puncture those where we can. Eric, I'm shocked that you suggest we have an empire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my students will be surprised. <laughs> okay. uh, so, yeah, so we're, we're, uh, we're a bit pressed for time uh, because of our conflicting schedules and time zones and the like. So I really want to, uh, I can continue on and on, but I want to finish uh, just asking you, uh, what are you up to now? What, what's next for you? When can we be back? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you did tell me you were going to ask this question and I, I should have thought of a good answer uh, because the, the, the book is quite, fresh off the presses, I'd like to stress. Um, but uh, I am I am sort of thinking in the early stages, at least, about a, a project on the relationship between British imperialism and, and European fascism. Um, exactly what form that will take, I'm not sure. Um, you know, but I am interested in looking both at the question of, of what the British Empire meant to Italian and, and German fascists, um, but also probably more centrally looking at sort of parallels between this kind of right-wing imperial current of reaction in Britain uh, and parallels connections with, um, you know, fascism and, and the continent, because I think there, there is more similarity there probably than has been acknowledged. And there's more similarity than difference. Um, you know, the kind of apologetics that gathered around general Dyer after the Amritsar massacre, for instance, I think that represents a pretty, uh, troubling and, um, far from marginal current in, in British politics and British culture. So I'd like to pursue that further. Um, Looking perhaps as well at, at you know settlers in Kenya, at Anglo-Indian military officers, I think all of whom had various degrees of, of sympathy with fascism. And um, how far I can push that, I'm not sure yet, but I, I want to continue exploring it for a while. Thank you. And as someone teaches about fascism right now, I'll, I'll certainly uh, I certainly welcome uh, that kind of work. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you for uh, spending time uh, with us today. Thank you, John Paul, for joining. And I hope Thank to you. see you again soon. Thank you. Of course, you just finished book soon enough. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Nice.